Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. Well, good morning. It's great to be here this morning. I, uh, I have been absent. Uh, um, everybody says you retired. I, I didn't retire. I'm still doing stuff. Uh, it's just for the last three months, I haven't been at Waterstone. Actually, over the last three months on Sundays, I have visited 20 different churches um, just to see what, 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 what's going on out there. And um, there's some great things going on out there. God is doing some amazing stuff. Um, I was kind of playing spy, you know, to go and uh, actually see uh, best practices. And boy, just learned a ton. Uh, to see what other churches are doing and how God's using them, and it, it was great. So, but it's great to be home and to to be here today. Uh, I've missed being here on Sundays, so it's good. Let's pray. Father, we know that your Spirit is in our midst because your people have gathered together. We pray that He would work in us this morning that he would convict us where we need to be convicted and challenge us where we need to be challenged, uh, comfort us where we need to be comforted, and that he'd just be at work in us, in our hearts, in our, our, our minds, uh, the whole of us, so that when we leave this morning, we, we are changed, we're different, we're, uh, uh, if in no other way, more like you, Jesus, in our thinking. Uh, we want to be transformed into your image and we know that's a long process, but that you use your word in the midst of that. So we pray you do that this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A while back, a man named Thomas Edsel, he writes for New York Magazine, wrote an article entitled, No Hate Left Behind. In the article, he writes this. He says, a recent survey asked Republicans and Democrats whether they agreed with the statement that members of the opposition party are not just worse for politics, they are downright evil. The answers were startling, but maybe they shouldn't have been. Just over 42% of the people in each party view the opposition as downright evil. In real numbers, this suggests that 48.8 million voters out of the 136.7 million who casted ballots in 2016 believed that the members of the opposition party were in league with the devil. Later on in the article, he writes that a great deal of contemporary research shows that how we, however we define ourselves, find them uh, not just mistaken, but we actually find them evil and worthy of, well, extermination. Folks, we live in a very polarized, divided world. And uh, tribalism, the idea that the world is us and them, and the us is my tribe, those people like me, either socially or culturally or ethnically or language-wise or, or, or in terms of, of citizenship, those like me, my tribe, it's better than the other, runs rampant in our culture and in our world. 
What is really disconcerting about that, though, from my perspective, is that uh, divisiveness, that kind of tribalism, has seeped in to the church. And at times, you can feel the tension. This notion that if uh, you don't believe exactly like I believe, think like I think, if you're not part of the same party I'm part of, if you don't hold the same position I hold, if you don't interpret the Bible the way I interpret the Bible, well then, to be honest, you're just, you're just not very spiritual. You're just not very mature in your faith. Uh, the church itself is becoming a place of divisiveness. So it raises this, I think, foundational and incredibly important question. How do we as Christ followers maintain our unity, maintain our oneness in a world that is polarized? How do we do that? Now, I think Jesus was concerned about that as well. In fact, we're going to look at a, a, a prayer he prays for us, for you and me. And at the heart of that prayer, he's praying about our unity, about our oneness, about how we get along. Uh, we're working our way towards Easter, so we're focusing on a, a few incidences from Christ's uh, life as he approaches his death. You know, death has a way of putting life into perspective. It gives life a sense of urgency. I mean, if you went to the doctor this week and he, he told you that you had three days to live, man, your life would fundamentally change in those next three days. Man, you'd, you'd try to get everything done on the bucket list. <laughs> you, you would give yourself to that which was most important, what was most critical in life. And you know, Jesus is not being caught by surprise. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to die. So he is giving himself to that which is most important. He, he, he has this meal with his disciples where he does this enacted sermon, this object lesson of watching, washing their feet so they understood that they're to be about, about service. He, he celebrates the Passover because the Passover foreshadows what's going to happen in terms of his death and gives some sense of meaning and connects the dots for his disciples so that they understand He's being a sacrifice for them and for the world. He spends time talking about uh, their need to be obedient, especially in terms of how they love one another. He spends time talking about the fact that the, the Spirit is coming and they're getting this incredible gift. These are amazingly important to him. And then you know what he does? He prays for them. Prays for them. Uh, um, because he knows what's coming and the challenges they'll face. It's called the high priestly prayer. It's found in John 17. And what's fascinating to me is at the end of that prayer, he prays for us. He prays for all those believers who are yet, yet believers who are going to come to believe in him through history. So we need to pay a special attention to this prayer. It's hugely important, hugely significant. And what he prays about is simply the fact that we need to be one. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can watch the screens. Follow along. My prayer is not for them alone, not for the disciples he's been praying for alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Right, that's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make them known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. (laughs) John is incredibly obtuse. I mean, you read that, or at least I read that passage, and at the end of that, I'm going, I'm not sure I know what he's talking about. (laughs) Glory, oneness. I mean, I get the general gist. He's praying for us, and he wants us to be, be one. But I don't even know what he means in terms of oneness. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about what oneness is not. Because I think sometimes we're confused about what unity really looks like and what oneness is. And then come back and talk about what oneness is. And having done that, then spend some time seeing if we can take the abstract and make it concrete. Give us uh, some application uh, to see how we can live this out. Okay, so what oneness is not. One of the things that oneness is not, it, it is not institutional unity. A lot of people read this passage and they assume that if the church was unified, if the church was one, then there would be one institution, one organization throughout history, one church that everybody belonged to, that all Christians uh, uh, pled, you know, commitment to. And the problem is that's not true. So people go, see, uh, this whole thing isn't true because it's not true. I mean, if that was the point of Jesus' prayer, then it failed miserably, right? I, I mean, David Barrett notes this. He says, Christianity consists of six major ecclesiastical cultural blocks divided into 300 major ecclesiastical traditions composed of over 33,000 distinct denominations in 238 countries. These denominations themselves being composed of over 3,400,000 worship centers, churches, or congregations. I I mean, if Jesus' intent was that there'll be one institution, one organization, we've failed miserably. But I want to suggest to you that I don't think he was praying that at all. His prayer didn't have anything at all to do with that. I mean, he's saying our, our, our oneness would be like uh, the oneness between the Father and the Son. And, and when he does that, you are pretty quick to pick up that that has nothing to do with organization or institution. He's talking about something else. And by the way, uh, 
And this is just my personal opinion. Most people see denominations as a great evil. I actually think denominations are one of God's most brilliant strategies to reach humanity with the gospel. Uh, Let me explain why. I, I believe that God loves diversity. And he has made people incredibly different with different personalities and temperaments and orientations and just all kinds of diversity in how they think and what what moves them and what they like and what they dislike. And I think God has used dominations to reach that diversity. The world, humanity is not monolithic. So, for example, you have Episcopalians, right? They're uptight. I mean that in a good way, if there is a good way to mean that. They're very formal. They like very structured worship. They don't want emotion. They don't want to cry in a service. They want to think in a service. They want to be cerebral. They like to know what's coming. They love the liturgy. I mean, I love Episcopalians. I feel home there. I know I'm a Baptist, but that's out of conviction. But if it was just preference, I would be an Episcopalian. It's great. And it reaches people. Maybe not you, but it reaches. Then on the other end of the extreme, you have the Pentecostals. They want to roll around on the floor. They want to raise their hands. They want to sing and shout and cry. And they want to dance like Jesus danced in their, like Jesus, like David danced in his worship. That's awesome. They think that's authentic. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I don't want to be there. That's not me. That's not how I'm wired. But there's lots of people wired that way. You know what the denominations do? They adapt to the distinctives of different cultures and different people groups and different languages. And they figure out how to take the gospel so that those people can connect. It's a brilliant strategy. Now, a lot of the denominations come out of power plays and politics and under a mess of reasons. But God redeems it and then uses those denominations to reach his world. I think it's an awesome strategy. Brilliant. Jesus isn't praying about institutional unity. I also don't think that he is praying about doctrinal agreement. If you go back to the text for a moment, verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, not for his disciples. I pray also for those who, these are the people coming, they do two things. They believe in me and they believe in me through the message. What Jesus is doing here is he's setting a kind of boundary. He's saying, look, there are people who are on the inside who are believers And there are people on the outside who are not believers. And by the way, every community needs some sort of boundary that defines who's in and who's out. If you don't have a boundary, then you don't have a community. All you have is a crowd, a gathering of people. And Jesus is saying, no, there there is a community. There is a community of, of people who are true True believers, people who have life with me, and they're characterized by two things. They believe, and they believe the message that the disciples proclaimed. 
So the question is, okay, what's the message and what does it mean to believe? Because if we can define those two things, we can figure out who's, who's in and who's out. Well, what's the message? The message is the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news. What's it good news about? It's good news that Jesus, who was God, became flesh, came as a king to reestablish his kingdom, which he does through his sacrificial atoning death and his resurrection. That's the heart of the gospel, right? Pretty simple. And if that's the gospel, he's saying those people who believe in that gospel are in. What does it mean to believe? Well, there's an intellectual ascent piece. There's certain things you have to believe about who Jesus was and what he did, the resurrection, those kind of things. There's a trust piece that says, I'm going to depend on him to provide me salvation. I can't work my way to heaven. It's a gift that comes by grace. And third, kind of like legs of a stool, you have the intellectual ascent, you have the trust, then you have the issue of allegiance. Right, Jesus is the king. How do you respond to a king? You bow your knee. You give him the rightful place of Lord in your life. That's how you become part of his community. Now, here's the point. If you believe, you give intellectual sense, trust, and allegiance to the message of the gospel that Jesus is king who came and established his kingdom through his death, his atoning death on the cross and resurrection, you're in. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is saying, if you're in, you're to be one. In other words, he's saying that our unity or our oneness is not based on all this doctrine out here. It's based on a common connection to Jesus. So Jesus doesn't care what you believe about baptism. Whether you're baptized as an infant or whether you're immersed or whether you're sprinkled. That doesn't determine whether you're in or not. He he doesn't care what you believe about the second coming. Because that doesn't determine whether you're in or not. You can believe post-trib, all-mill, pre-mill, nothing at all. It's irrelevant to him. He doesn't care whether you see Genesis as literal and creation took place in seven days or whether you think the earth is ancient. Now, some of these things are really important, but they don't affect this. And he's saying your unity is not based on your agreement about all these secondary things. Your unity, your oneness is based on believing this message. You know what that means? That when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who's there. There'll be people there you wouldn't have never guessed. You know what else? There are going to be a lot of people there who are surprised that you're there. (laughs) Yeah. Unity has to be between all those who believe the message. Not on all our doctrinal agreement. He also is not talking about what I call tribal Uh, tribal, common tribal identity. And what's interesting, this is usually what we base our, uh, the outworking of our unity on. We like to hang around and be around and be friends with people who are like us, 
who, who are of our culture or sometimes of our ethnicity, who speak our language, who have our same background, who are in our same social economic status, who are, are in the same stage of life. Why? Because it's the most comfortable for us. That's who we connect with. And we think, hey, if we're doing a good job of getting along with the people like us, then we're exhibiting unity. And Jesus is going, that's easy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you getting along with the people you like and who are like you. Sure you do that. I'm talking about something way beyond that. I'm talking about you getting along and loving and being unified with those people who are not like you, who are not part of your social strata, who are not part of your ethnicity, who don't speak your language, who are not the same, who do not have the same color of skin, who don't think like you, who aren't in the same political party as you, but are in the circle. And you see that in the New Testament. What happens? You, you, you begin to see from the very beginning in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, there's all these different people who speak different language and suddenly they hear the gospel and they believe and suddenly you understand this is a multinational world kind of movement. And in the early church, there's no Jew, no Greek, no female, no male, uh, no slave, no free. Those are all the things that, you know, divided their world up. And he says, no, the gospel transcends that. Look at the letters of Paul, and he mentions all these names. And the diversity of names is huge because you have rich, you have poor, you have free and, and, and enslaved and leaders and masters and uh, peasants. And they're all part of this body. That's what he's talking about, something that transcends our tribal unity. And folks, the church is not very good at living that out. Because we're most comfortable when we're people, when we're around people like us. Just being comfortable with your tribe, it's fine, but it's not spiritual. So if oneness is not institutional unity, not doctrinal agreement, not common tribal identity, what is oneness? Well, first of all, as you go into this passage, you begin to understand that it is modeled in the father and son. In other words, the relationship between the father and son. And this is going to get abstract for a moment, so hang with me. He's talking about the very inside of the Trinity and how the father and the son relate to one another and how they're connected, how they're unified. Look at some of the texts. Uh, verse 21, he says that, I am praying that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. What's he talking about? May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Given the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. You know, <laughs> what's that mean? Uh, he's talking about, if you think about the Trinity, the Trinity says that, that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one in essence, but different persons. He's talking about that kind of oneness. Um, and I'm going to give you a big word here, and I want you to to learn it, I, and you're gonna go, Nick, this is not helpful. I understand that, but hold with me, okay? He's talking about what I would describe as an ontological unity. 
You think, great, yeah, just as I thought, that's not helpful at all. Say the word with me, ontological. Okay, I want you to remember that. Ontological has to do with the essence of who you are, with your very being, with the substance. That means it's ontological. And what he's describing when he's describing the relationship between the father and son is an ontological oneness. They're actually one in some kind of substance, in some kind of existential way. And he's making the argument that our oneness with them has to be that same kind of thing. It's, it's not just a connection. It's not just a relationship. It's, not just, it's ontological. It, it has the very substance of reality in it. If you look at this text, that's what he's saying. And you're going, I, I, don't, I don't get that. I don't get it either. There's a mystery around it but it's real. I was trying to, to, to think what, what this might look like. Um, well, let, let me do it this way. I think this will help us. Let's talk about um, different kinds uh, of unity. We're going to look at functional unity and relational unity and then ontological unity. Functional unity. This is when uh, you have a common purpose or a common goal and everybody's striving for that common goal and because you have this common goal or purpose, it it creates a connection. So uh, you're out here and you're all striving for this same end. Okay? Uh, Texas Tech the basketball team that's going to the, the final game, right? They're, they're unified, but it's a functional unif- unification, func- functional unity. Why? Because they want to win the final four, and everybody on that team is focused on winning the final four. Now, outside the context of that team, they might not even get along, right? But in the context of that team, then everybody has the same focus, that's functional unity. At times, uh, we as the body of Christ should have a functional unity. We should all be about the kingdom. But that's not what he's talking here. Another kind of unity is called relational unity. And this is where we have a common connection to a person or thing talking to Larry about this, and he was telling me that um, if you're a Penn State fan and uh, you're walking along and you see somebody in a Penn State sweatshirt, you know, what you do is you raise your hand and you say, we are, and Larry's not here because he shouted every other time, Penn State, right? That's what they shout, and you slap hands because you have this common connection to Penn State, my college professor said that was considered the great foobah. When you, it means nothing. It means that you think you have a connection, you really don't. You just like something in common. It's like when you're from Colorado and you're at Disneyland and you find another person from Colorado and you think, oh, we're both from Colorado. There's three million people in Colorado. Who cares that you're both at Disneyland? You know, but we think, oh, common. Sometimes it's more significant than that. And we often look at our unity to Christ based on this, right? Because we have a common connection, common relationship with Jesus, each of us. And we think, and this is true, it creates some kind of connection between us. 
And usually that's what we mean by unity, that we have this common connection because we both know Jesus. And there's some truth to that. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something that is more substantive, more significant, more real, more existential, something that's ontological. It has to do with our very being. In the text, he says, look, the Father and Jesus are one. And we symbolize it this way because when they make that statement, they're not saying they're overlapping circles because the Father is still distinct from the Son, right? The Son prays to the Father. The Son tries to do the Father. There's aspects where they're distinct. But at times, they're so overlapped that they're considered one. In the Gospel of John, when the Son is, is doing his work, sometimes they say the Father is doing his work. They overlap in a real existential way that's substantive. And in this text, he's, say, he's talking about the church, and he's saying, look, just as the Father and the Son are one in substance, so the Father and the church should be one, and the Son and the church should be one. We should be somehow mysteriously connected in an ontological, substantive, existential way. And I was trying to think through what's an illustration of this. And I, I, I think one of the illustrations of this is DNA. Okay, we're part of the same family. If we are part of the same family, we have traits, we may look a little bit alike, we may have some color hair, we may have some mannerisms. But even those are just tangential kinds of similarities. The substance of our similarity is the fact that on the inside of us, we have similar DNA. That's what marks us as family. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying, look, if you're on the inside of the circle, if you're a true believer, then you have spiritual DNA that substantially connects you to the Father and the Son and get this, to each other. Because we think, oh, okay, the church has that substance, but he's also saying, here you are. You're connected to the Son, and you're connected to the Father. But then he's saying, here I am. <laughs> Not only am I connected to the Son and to the Father, oh, but I'm connected to you. Let that sink in. You're saying, oh, I'm not sure I believe in that. Well, hold on. Let's look at two verses. 1 John chapter 4, 13. This is the mechanism how this works. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So that's part of how we're connected to God. But notice, the connection goes beyond. This is a fascinating verse. Romans 12, 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And get this and individually members one of another. I'm connected to you, and you're connected to me in an ontological, substantive, existential way. Somewhat mystically, somewhat spiritually, but far more than just in the abstract. 
Now, if you're listening and you're getting this, this should be an oh crap moment for you. And if it's not, you're not getting it. Because look, if we are in Christ, we are ontologically connected, whether we like it or not. That means if I don't like you and you don't like me, guess what? We're still connected. That means if you're a Republican and I'm a communist and somebody else is a Democrat and somebody's a socialist and we all dislike each of those horrifically, guess what? It doesn't matter. We're still connected. It doesn't matter whether you disagree with me on every doctrinal position. As long as I'm a believer and you're a believer, we're connected. It doesn't matter whether uh, we're of a different race, we're of a different culture, we're of a different social status. It doesn't matter if we're uh, of ethnicities that war against each other. Guess what? We're still connected. And we have to be one. Are you getting the old crap piece now? I mean, can you think of the people who are believers that you don't like, that you don't want to be connected with? If you can't, you're not thinking. And here's the deal, folks. This isn't just in the abstract. This oneness has to work itself out in a visible way. And we'll talk about this in a moment, but he's saying, look, this oneness has to be visible to the world because they're watching. So let me give you four applications that'll help us uh, uh, make this more concrete in our lives. I know this has been pretty abstract, but hang with me. First of all, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of the greater whole in Christ. And what I mean by that is simply this, that there, the New Testament doesn't know anything about a Lone Ranger Christian. The New Testament doesn't know anything about someone who claims to be a believer but is disconnected from the community of faith. Um, we have privatized and individualized our faith, and that is really our American value system corrupting our Christian belief. You cannot simply have a Christianity that is Jesus and you. You can't simply have a private relationship that, that's not connected to the community of faith. Now, the reason this happens is because when we preach the gospel in our culture, what do we tell people? Accept Jesus, and Jesus will come into your heart. It's interesting when you go to the New Testament, under 10 times we are told that Jesus is in us. Over 150 times we are told that we are in Jesus. The emphasis is not that he is in us. The emphasis is that we are in him. 
And you say, well, so what? So what? It's everything. Because if I primarily, foundationally see my relationship with Jesus as him becoming part of my story, then it's easy for me to function as this individual disconnected from the larger picture of his community. Because it's just Jesus and me. I have Jesus in my heart. That's all I need. It's just him and me. And I'll live that out. But that's not New Testament Christianity. You know what New Testament Christianity is? It says that we become part of his story, that we become part of his body, that we become, we are in him. And when we are in him, the first thing you begin to understand, we're not alone. Other people are in him. And because we're in him together, substantively, we're connected to each other. So I have to be in community. If you think that you can live out your faith apart from the local church and expressing that community, there's a name for that. It's called disobedience. It is not possible. It's sin. It's denying the reality of the substance of your oneness in Christ. Whether you like it or not. And you cannot change the gospel to fit your personal preference. I don't like other people. God doesn't care. I mean, he cares, but not. He's not going to give you a pass. Second, we need to have a radical and sacrificial love for God's people. We don't have time, but if you go into the prayer of John 17, you begin to understand that he's describing this relationship between Jesus the, Jesus the Son and God the Father. They're both glorifying each other. Jesus is going to be glorified by going to the cross. And you begin to understand that what he's describing, the best way I can put it, is that there is this dance going on between the members of the Trinity. And it's been going on from all eternity past. And the dance is a dance of love and of glorifying each other and of grace. The Father is continuously loving the Son and the Son is continuously loving the Father and the Spirit is loving them both and they're both loving on the Spirit and they're both seeking to glorify each other. And what happens, God creates. God does not create because he's lonely. He has the Trinity. God creates because he wants to, to share the dance with others. And when we become believers, we're invited into the dance. Now we dance with the Trinity and we're loving God and we're glorifying God and God is giving us his glory and, and loving us. And, and, and the primary move of the dance you see on the cross in the sacrificial love of Jesus. And that means we need to dance the dance and live a life of sacrificial love. And that love has to be expressed to our brothers and sisters. It's not optional. And you see this played out. You go to Acts chapter 2. One of the interesting things in Acts chapter 2 is the early church begins selling its stuff. They're selling their stuff to get money so they, they can give to their brothers and sisters so that they have enough to eat and can survive. That's not an early form of communism. He's not making a comment on your economic system. He's making a comment about their oneness. They are so connected to one another that when one of the body is hurting, that's them hurting, they do the, it's an automatic thing. Well, you sell yourself, you help them out because we're one. No choice. 
I think this is hard for some of us. Because I'll just be honest with you. There are moments in my life where I do not like the church. Times in my life where I don't want to tell people what I do, that I'm a pastor of a church. And what makes it worse, I don't want to admit to them that it's an evangelical church. And I don't even want to tell people that I'm an evangelical, though I am by doctrine and conviction. But I'm embarrassed sometimes by how we've aligned ourselves and what we've done in the culture and, and what the, some of the positions we've taken, the people we, we've embraced. And I go, I don't want any of that. And I just want to opt out. And I got to tell you, folks, this, this convicted my socks off. Because I get real judgy. I, get, I, I, I start doing what the guy said. Those people, they're not just holding a different position. They're evil. I can't do that. They're my brothers and my sisters. And my obligation to them isn't to judge them and criticize them and evaluate their position or, uh, uh, you know, complain about their thinking. My job is to love them. And that means I have to put aside my arrogance. I have to put aside my smugness. I have to put aside my feeling of intellectual superiority. I have to put aside some of those things I hold dear and say, you know what? The one thing I need to do is love them. And that means I can't opt out. Why? Because we're one. They're believers, I'm believers, we're connected in ways I don't understand. Third, our identity in Christ supersedes everything else. You know, all of us have a a way of thinking about ourselves, mother, father, you know, an educator, a lawyer, a teacher, a plumber. What, we have our identity, you know. We affiliate with certain movements and parties, and uh, it's our identity. And Jesus is saying, look, when it comes to your identity, your fundamental identity, I am to triumph over everything else. Your allegiance to me is greater than your allegiance to anything else in your life. You know, Jesus says some radical things. At one point, he says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. And you're going what are you talking about, Jesus? And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you want to compare your allegiance to your family with your allegiance to me, I win, and I win by a lot. You want to compare your allegiance to a political party? Guess what? I win, and I win by a lot. You want to compare your allegiance to, to a country? no, <laughs> no. I win, and I win by a lot. You are a citizen of heaven, and you serve a new king, King Jesus, and he wants all your loyalty. And your fundamental identity is not that you're American or a Democrat or a Republican or or Caucasian or German hair or whatever. Your fundamental identity is you're a child of God. And what's happened in our culture is we have wrapped up our faith with our politics and with our patriotism 
and we've made Christianity into a civil religion. And Jesus is saying, not so fast. I don't care whether you're an American. I don't care what political party you're you're in. Those mean very little to me. I care that your allegiance is to me as king. And that triumphs over everything. Last, just so we understand how important this is, understand what is at stake, the salvation of the world. Say, Nick, what are you talking about? Well, look back at at verses 22 and 23. It says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity, then, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the world's watching. And they're watching how you treat each other and how you love one another. And if you love well, the world's gonna go, wow. That's amazing that they're so diverse, they're so different, they are all over the spectrum, and yet they love one another. The only way that could happen is if this Jesus, this Jesus guy really came and changed, changed them from the inside out. We want a neighbor. One of the best things we can do to neighbor is to love each other. So that when they come in, they're impressed with how we love one another. Let me end with a quote, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's from Philip Yancey, Denominational Diagnostics, an article he wrote. He says, as I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted, grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? When I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I feel. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper I'm going to invite those servers to come forward. 
In the early church, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they would use one loaf. And the reason they used one loaf is that it represented their oneness and their unity. The one loaf represents that this morning. We often tell people to prepare for communion. And I think they think we are saying they need to make sure they're right with God. And that's not a bad thing to do. But in the New Testament, when it tells you to take uh, communion in a worthy manner, it's telling you to make sure that you've looked at your relationships with others and that they're well. Because this one loaf represents the body, and when we participate in this communion, we are proclaiming the oneness of Christ's body. So I want you to prepare your hearts. I'm going to break the bread. There'll be stations around the room.